MSW Media. This week, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was arrested at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he has lived for years. He was charged with a conspiracy to commit a computer intrusion by agreeing to help former Army Intel officer Chelsea Manning defeat an encrypted password. Many critics of the prosecution have argued that this indictment will chill press freedom. Should we be concerned about the indictment of Assange? What can we expect from this case going forward? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I will. I am glad to be back. I am. I've lost just a little bit of sleep over this past week uh, pr- trying a case on behalf of my client. But it is good to be back uh, doing this podcast. I'm so grateful that uh, Asha did a good a good job holding the fort while I was gone. Well, we all miss you, and it was great to hang out with Asha and have great conversations. Uh, but I uh, again happy to have you back. Absolutely. Well, I will tell you. Uh, as soon as I poked my head up once the uh, once the trial was over, there was an insane amount of legal news. It was hard to decide what to do this on because obviously the redacted bar report, uh, bar, it's called the bar report. Supposedly it's going to be the Mueller report, but it's so redacted. I think at this point it's the bar report. It's coming out. Uh, Mike Lavinati was uh, indicted for 36 counts. <laughs> um, obviously not a good situation for him. Gregory Craig was charged. Uh, with uh, crimes for lying to Mueller's team. So there's a lot of potential legal news. And I know a lot of our listeners are not, are wondering, why should I care about the details of this prosecution of Julian Assange? Like, why should it matter to me? Because a lot of folks don't like Assange for good reason. I mean, Assange, I will confess, is not my best friend. At one time, he um, threatened to uh, sue me uh, on Twitter for oh. some for some reason. Uh, he didn't like what I had to say. Um, but I do think this, and I think it's um, this is an important principle we should all keep in mind, is that no matter who is being charged by the government, we should always be careful and thoughtful about the precedent that is being set by what the government is doing. And so while I don't have some of the same concerns as, as his greatest defenders, I think it's important for all of us to really take stock of what is being done here and make sure that the government isn't doing something that we think is improper. Because when the government takes on anybody or sets any precedent, that's a very important thing. Well, and I think that there are people who do see him as a hero. You know, they want to know what our government is up to. You know, a lot of people don't trust the government and are you know, vigilant when it comes to the freedom of the press rights. And uh, but I, you know, but at what you know, the way he uses it is disconcerting for a lot of people as well. You know, it seems to be to his benefit rather than for the good of uh, for all. Does that make sense? It does. I, so, um, you know, just so we're on the same page, 
I don't trust everything the government does. I'm often critical of the president of the United States, for example, in his administration. I think they do a lot of things that are um, sometimes unconstitutional or illegal, other times just merely evil uh, in some way. And I am not uh, somebody who is uncritical of what the DOJ does. I mean, literally, I just spent you know, the last week and many sleepless nights trying a case against the Justice Department in which I thought they were prosecuting an innocent man. And the jury, I think the, you know, 10 out of 12 jurors agreed and the judge agreed on the main count that, that he was an innocent man. So there, there, are, there are times when the Justice Department does things that are wrong or that are misguided or that are sometimes even, you know, things that, that uh, I think are not in accordance with how our, um, you know, how our uh, judicial system should work. And I think we are right to call them out when they do that. Um, and so it's important for us, I think, to get into the weeds. And I want everyone, no matter what your feelings are about Julian Assange, to be to put those to the side and to, to learn about the legal issues at stake here. Because what I think and what I predict is that the um, this case is going to get a lot bigger in the future. And even if we don't have as many concerns right now, we may have them um, as this case grows over time. Right. And so when it comes to First Amendment rights, you know, that's what people are, are most concerned about when they, you know, in, in regards to this prosecution. Uh, so, I, you know, but the First Amendment is not absolute. And that's something that's important to talk about as well. That's right. And, and I think we will. And I think another thing we should also keep in mind is in this era when the president of the United States is calling the press the enemy of the of the American people uh, more right. than ever, we have to protect the press, although obviously Julian Assange um, is uh, doing something at times that can be distinguished, I think, very carefully from what the press is doing in the United States. And how incredible that the Ecuadorian embassy turned him over because they were just fed up with him. Yeah, I think that that is definitely an element here. And one thing we don't know is... Exactly. Um, You know, I don't think we know exactly why it is that suddenly that this this happened at this time. Um, You know, uh, you know why it was that the Ecuadorians gave him up, why it was that the UK uh, was okay with this. But, you know, there have been some reports that he was um, acting in an erratic manner, to put it mildly, um, and that uh, Ecuador was concerned for his own mental health, which, of course, is unfortunate. We don't want I don't want anyone to. Uh, suffer. But at the same time, um, you know, I think that that may have played a role here. And certainly I think both of those governments want to please the United States government. Yep, absolutely. Looking forward to the conversation. Indeed. And and let's start that conversation by bringing in our guest this week, Barb McQuaid. Many of you know her because she is an MSNBC legal analyst. So she, you see her often on the Rachel Maddow show and other shows on MSNBC. She's also the former United States attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, a very, you know, large district that contains Detroit and, and a lot of other, um, you know, uh, sizable metropolitan areas. Um, so let's bring in Barb now. Welcome back to the podcast, Barb. Thanks for joining us again. Oh, thanks, Renato. Glad to be here with you and Patty. So, Barb, I think the number one thing that has been debated about this, and there's, I think, a lot of reasonable people who disagree on the subject, is whether or not we should be concerned that the indictment of Julian Assange implicates the freedom of the press. What, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, when I first read this indictment, I thought that um, the prosecutors did a really interesting thing here by kind of dodging that question, by focusing on computer intrusion, which appears from the factual allegations that they can back up. They've avoided that larger question of that tension between First Amendment rights and protecting national security. We discussed this in my national security law class, and, you know, it goes back to the Pentagon Papers case, and I know a lot of journalists are concerned that uh, if they merely receive national security information or classified information and they publish that, are they subject to prosecution under the Espionage Act? That question has never really been answered because the Pentagon Papers, as you know, and as anyone who watched that movie, The Post, knows, was a question about prior restraints where the court said you can't the government can't uh, order a newspaper to not pr- publish something in advance, but it didn't quite answer the question of whether a publication could be prosecuted for publishing national defense information. And the majority opinion is really short. It's a whole bunch of concurring and dissenting opinions that push what are the outer bounds. Some say it's an absolute First Amendment right, and the press should always be permitted to publish such things, and others say uh, it's not so clear, um, or if it's a, a matter of very significant national security, the press should not be permitted to do it. So the parameters that are really unclear. So I think from a prosecutor's perspective, strategically, it was wise to come up with a much more narrow charge that kind of steers away from that by focusing on his conduct to crack the password as opposed to his publication of the materials. Yeah, I I had the same reaction, Barb. I had the same reaction. I think uh, I was pretty vocal about that on Twitter. So I was, you know, I, I, a lot of people were speculating before we knew what the charges were. I did not do that. Uh, I waited to see what the actual charge was. And when I saw it, I said, look, you know, I've prosecuted intrusion cases uh, when I was a prosecutor, not of journalists, but of, you know, random people. And, uh, you know, that's something that journalists should not be engaged in. I think it's a very, uh, you know, to me, no matter who you are, uh, no matter what you do, whether you're selling hot dogs or um, building homes or you're a journalist, you shouldn't be trying to defeat the Pentagon's password. So I think that's like a fairly straightforward principle. Now, since that time, there have been some folks, Ari Melber, I think, uh, obviously, who's with, you know, joins you on MSNBC often, you appear on a show and so forth, but others have, have, have pointed to language that I would say is in the description of the conspiracy. So in other words, just so everyone knows what we're talking about, a conspiracy is an agreement to commit a crime, and it is defined by the government in the indictment. They, they describe the conspiracy uh, in the indictment. Now, what makes something a conspiracy is the criminal act, the crime, in this case, the computer intrusion. But in the description of the conspiracy, they did include an, what I'll call innocuous activities. And um, I think that um, there has been some questions raised. Some folks like Ari are pointing out that they think that some of the description of the conspiracy could um, uh, could implicate press freedom. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, you're right in that it's a bit of a speaking indictment. As you know, an indictment could be a really simple allegation that a statute was violated on a particular date in a particular place. This instead uh, covers maybe nine or so pages where it discusses in some, six pages, it discusses in some detail um, that it was classified information, that Chelsea Manning had a clearance, 
and that Julian Assange did not, um, and that these were documents that pertain to the national defense. And those are many of the kinds of words that are used in the Espionage Act. I think that is probably what causes some nervousness. And it also talks about how <clears throat> Assange kind of was working his source in Manning and saying uh, something towards the effect of uh, curious eyes never run dry, you know, kind of keep looking, keep looking. And there are journalists who work sources in such a way. But I do think that where the line is drawn here is, as you say, the charge itself is not an Espionage Act offense for publishing these documents. It is instead crossing that line of agreeing to hack into a government computer. And, and I think it was deliberate. I think they understand that publishing is getting near the third rail. And, you know, for First Amendment freedoms to respect that freedom, I think they wanted to steer clear of it. I, I think they also wanted to manage litigation risk, that if they had charged it in that way, it would be very controversial, likely to draw motions to dismiss, could even be fatal to the case, and might also make it more difficult to extradite him. And so um, I, I don't think that those concerns, um, I don't share those concerns in this case. In fact, I think they validate the concerns that they recognized them and avoided them. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Barb. So let me say a couple of things. So first of all, I understand that there are some folks, Ari, and then obviously some people who are, I'll, I'll say, more interested in the case, for example, uh, Glenn Greenwald and others, who are making the argument that there's this innocuous activity, activity that a, a lot of journalists would engage in that's included in the conspiracy charge. I will just say as somebody who has practiced a lot federal criminal law on both sides, um, that it is often the case that the government includes innocuous or non-criminal activity as part of a conspiracy. You can imagine in a bank robbery case that you might go and buy a ski mask or you might go and get a getaway car. And in and of itself, buying a car or getting a ski mask is not a crime. Um, but they're, they're going to say that these otherwise innocuous, innocuous activities are part of the conspiracy. I literally just finished a jury trial in which most, if not all, of the things that were described as part of the conspiracy were, in fact, innocuous. And that ended up hurting the government in that trial very much. The Justice Department, uh, you know, had a bad result uh, because of that. So I think that that is just what happens in uh, criminal cases. And the, the key is what the charge is. And so I think, you know, you know, I think one and I agree with you, by the way, Barb, as well. That, you, as you point out, the litigation, they, they were looking at this issue, and I think, as you, as you said, they realized that they may never be able to get a court to, to um, let them, you know, you know uh, criminalize the, the um, distribution of classified material itself. They, I think they very carefully sidestepped it. And I know, uh, Patty, we had some questions from our audience about whether or not these charges could expand. And, and can, what are those Oh, it was uh, they. One of the listeners uh, said they saw that the UK can issue a waiver of the usual restriction to promise not to add additional charges after extradition. Um, but are there circumstances under which the US might do that? So, Barb, what are your thoughts on? Do you think what do you think will happen in terms of additional charges and 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 the interplay of that in the UK US treaty and so forth? Yeah. So you know, there's this thing called the rule of specialty, as you've referred to, which says that when you um, it extradites somebody, you can't kind of do a bait and switch. You can't say, well, we've extradited you for computer fraud, but now that we have you, aha, we're going to charge you with, um, 
the Espionage Act and interfering with an election and other things, that's not the deal. The treaty says that you have to lay out what the uh, charges are and what the person is going to answer to in the United States in your extradition documents, because he now has some rights in the UK to go challenge the extradition, to challenge his identity, to do a number of things. And the court will have to make sure in, in, uh, in the UK, will have to make sure that all these things are done properly. Now, as you said, Patty, uh, that rule of specialty can be waived. It seems, this is just a, a speculation, I suppose, on my part, but it seems unlikely to me that the United States would ask the United Kingdom to do it in a case like this, because I think that you have to think about the institution. And if you do that in a case like this, it, I think, really uh, undermines our positioning with respect to other treaties around the world. We want other countries to enforce our treaties. We want other countries to honor our word that this is what we're going to do. And I, I think to ask for a waiver here after he's been arrested on this extradition matter would just look bad in the world. Now, it, it can be done. If, if uh, the U.K. agrees, then it would. I suppose it would matter what those charges are. Um, but that's the idea behind it. And I know there's some speculation that, you know, once he gets here, they're going to add all these additional charges. And I don't think that's the case. They'd have to they'd have to get the U.K. to agree or they'd have to add them now before the extradition proceedings are completed in the U.K. It's interesting. This is one. What do you of, think, Renato? Do you think they would bait, they would bait and switch like that? Or I do. Ask the UK to wave. I do. I I think that I think so. Yeah. Here's what I think. I'm not really concerned right now about press freedom or whatever. But I think the DOJ is going to totally jam up Assange as soon as, as soon as they can. What I think this is is a placeholder indictment. And then they're going to add a whole bunch of charges either, you know, before he leaves or more more likely once they get him in, onto U.S. soil. In the U.K., you know, they have to decide, do they want, care more about policing the United States government or Assange and a bunch of people, you know, who are not governments who are going to feel, feel bad for Assange? My guess is they're going to just roll with whatever the United States government wants. And we're going to see an indictment that maybe they'll carefully go around press freedoms, but they're going to charge every other little thing that they can and try to jam up Assange and put him in a spot where it's going to be hard for him to get an, a, a not guilty on everything. Because I will tell you, I think, Barb, as I look at this, they have very serious problems um, with potentially proving their case. I mean, a lot of things about this strike me as um, this is far from a slam dunk case. And I think the worst possible thing from a DOJ perspective would be to get this guy, bring him to the United States, and and embarrass yourself. So I I suspect, um, and maybe I have less faith in the Justice Department than you do, but I think that's what they are going to do. And I suspect that you know my thoughts about press freedom may could even change depending on what they what charges that they add. Yeah, you know, um, well, I'll bet you a cup of coffee on the, the answer to that. That'd be fun. But I think the, the cup of coffee is going to get really cold while we wait because <laughs> I think it could be years. Uh, I've read that the extradition process in the U.K. can take um, many years, and experts there have predicted three years. I know even with, uh, you know, you probably did some extraditions. I did as well. It is surprising how long it can take. I had one from Canada. You would think he's right across the Detroit River um, in Canada, you would think that that would be very quick, and it took something like seven years uh, because of all the procedural rights. And so it really depends on the laws 
of the particular country where the extradition is going on. They have procedural rights, appellate rights, uh, and a number of things within that country before they get turned over. And there's also the possibility, I suppose, of Sweden renewing its um, sexual assault charges. I don't know whether they would get to, to go first before the United States, but it could be a long time before that happens. And what's interesting about that is if it does take that long, could there be a new administration and a new attorney general and a new direction? Um, you know, it was the Trump administration that decided to charge Assange and the crimes were committed in 2010 during the Obama administration. And so I think this is one where the administration matters and their philosophy on things like um, the strength of free press rights and other things could matter in deciding whether additional charges end up getting tacked on. So it'll be interesting to watch. But I look forward to my cup of coffee three years from now. <laughs> I'll get you more than a, get you more than a cup of coffee. Maybe I'll get you. A sh- I'll ship a Chicago pizza to you, um, Barb. Right. Um, but um, well, this is this is why you're you know that that's why I really like your 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 feedback and your analysis. Perhaps I'm more I'm being overly imaginative there, and and you're being more grounded. So I. I appreciate that. I mean, what I I have seen, you know, situations in the past where the DOJ expands its charges. Um, I will say, um, and maybe we'll go to um, we'll go to we can talk about the Swedish uh, charges uh, first because I know uh, we have some questions from our listeners on that. But I will I will say that I do think there are problems with this indictment, and we can talk about that in a moment. That I think informs my decision uh, on this because. I do think Assange is the sort of person that the DOJ might roll the dice on, um, but I definitely think this appears to me to be potentially one of those cases. But, Patty, do, what, what question do we have on uh, the, the Swedish charges? Yes. Are there, is there a chance that the Swedish woman who originally alleged rape, uh, that Sweden will then re, perhaps reinstigate the allegation and perhaps UK will deport him to Sweden? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a possibility. I really don't know the answer. I have read that she has asked them to reinstate their charges. Um, I don't know why they were dropped in the first place. It may have been that they thought it was futile because he was hanging out in the Ecuadorian embassy for seven years and they, you know, finally gave up on him. But um, if they were to reinstate those, I don't know whether they would get to go first because their case arose first or if it would be seen as starting now, you know, upon the date of the reinstatement, and they'd have to wait in line behind the United States. And because that extradition process can be so slow, um, that could take a very long time. So it could either delay his arrival into the United States, or it it might have to take a backseat to the U.S. case. But, you know, ultimately, if they wanted to proceed, he'd have to answer to the charges in both countries. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really interesting question because obviously it's a very serious allegation that was made. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that w- one way or the other he should answer for those charges. And if and and that that process should play itself out because that woman deserves, um, you know, to to have that process play. If if in fact the, the, the Swedish authorities believe that there is evidence to prove his guilt. Um, so I think that's important. Um, let me say, let me turn to the question of the issues with these charges, because I think there are a number of them. You know, on one level, okay, there one issue is there is a bit of a, it, it is a bit of an aggressive use of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And, um, you know, Oren Kerr at Lawfare did a nice job explaining that. He, had, I'd say, would be the foremost expert on the, the CFAA. But I want to focus on some of the evidentiary issues because I think they're important. 
So what we have here is a two-person conspiracy between Assange and Chelsea Manning, is what's alleged by the government. And my understanding is, and Barb, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that Chelsea Manning doesn't appear to be cooperative. Uh, is that is that your understanding as well? It is. You know, of course, we, we don't know all of the details, but uh, we know that she is jailed right now, being held in contempt for refusing to answer questions to a grand jury. I don't know that that relates to this case or to some other case. You know, as you know, once you've indicted a case, it's not proper to call a witness to testify just to build your evidence in, in an already charged case. It would have to be for the purpose of a new investigation, which could include additional counts or additional defendants. So it's unknown what it is they were looking for from her, but no doubt she has made public statements that she is not going to cooperate with the government. So they're not going to have her as a witness, it appears, unless things change. Barb, I think this is a huge problem for the government. Here's why. You know, they've charged a two-person conspiracy. Manning is not cooperating. So if that's the case, the defense potentially can call Manning. Manning could take the stand and say there was no conspiracy. She can give her own spin on the emails. She can give a totally different story. I will tell you, I just finished trying a case in a two-person conspiracy where the government called the other co-conspirator and he said there was no conspiracy under oath, which created a huge problem for the government. It's why I got I won a motion to, for acquittal on that count. Um, I think that whenever you have a, a co, you know alleged co-conspirators not under the government's control that is still siding with the defense, that's an issue. And Manning, I, my understanding would be would not have any exposure at this point. Um, you know, given all that she's already gone through, I think. I don't think she's really concerned about getting charged again. So, uh, you know, to me, that in and of itself is a very significant potential factual issue for the government. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but um, your recent experience at trial suggests that could be a problem. I think one thing that could be helpful to the government, and they would know the answer to this, is one of the things that she has said is a, a reason that she is not going to help the government any further is that she already told the government everything she knows during the time that she was um, prosecuted in the, the, the military, uh, the court-martial matter. Um, she said something like, you know, I, I've provided extensive testimony and answered all of the substantive questions during my court-martial. So if so, if those are you know, committed to a transcript, those could be used as prior and consistent statements if she were to get on the stand and lie. Now, it probably, to, to help Assange, at least neutralizes her as a witness, right? It may be that the government doesn't want to call her if she's not going to be helpful. But if uh, there are transcripts where she describes things, it would be difficult for Assange to ask her to testify contrary to those things. Exactly right. Of course, though, the government wouldn't potentially have a chance to prepare her to testify, wouldn't have a chance to talk to her beforehand, and she could color or spin those uh, prior right. statements, however. Right. So I think that to me is litigation risk. If I'm you know, if, if I if I was back in the government, they assigned me this case to be like, OK, this is a major problem. I think problem two uh, seems to me that she's hacking into um, you. She's essentially hacking into um, uh, an account that would allow her to access things she already had access to. And I understand legally that doesn't matter at all. But to the jury, 
you know, there's an element of, you know, uh, you, might, you might call it jury nullification where they're like, you know, why are we here? Like, why are we doing all this? What's this case about where she's, ha- you know, hacking in to get information she already had access to. They weren't even able to complete the hacking or, you know, get into the password. So who cares? I mean, yep. getting one juror on that, that's possible, right? I, I think that's possible. They might be able to convince somebody. It is. And, you know, sometimes I have seen this backfire on the government where you work so hard to craft a very narrow case, thinking that it's airtight. You know, um, we, we've, we've, there's all kinds of other stuff we could have charged this person with, but it has all these other problems like, you know, a threat to a free, free press, which could bring motions to dismiss, or um, political messiness with uh, implicating him in the Russia investigation. Let's just pick this one clean charge and it'll be really easy to prove. But the danger there is that the jury doesn't appreciate the full magnitude of the person's conduct. I was once involved in a case involving prosecutorial misconduct where a prosecutor was charged with a crime. And although there were many episodes of misconduct, they were a little messy. And so to make it kind of clean, um, the prosecutor chose a very narrow uh, one count obstruction of justice indictment. And the jury acquitted. And afterwards, they said things like, yeah, we just thought that that one mistake wasn't really, you know, we thought he did it, but it just wasn't a big enough deal. Um, And I often thought that if they had known the full magnitude, of misconduct, it would have been a very different case. And I, I kind of feel like the same thing may be true here, to your point, that if all they know is this one little episode of an attempted but failed uh, hacking into a, a locked computer, um, a jury might similarly say, well, what's the big deal? This, Especially in light of a, what will likely be a robust defense that talks about you know political motivations and the like. Exactly right. Exactly right, Barb. Because, you know, I think your example is a really good one. And people need to understand that a trial is a bubble. Uh, in other words, we know all these things about Assange. Everybody listening to this podcast has an opinion about him, good or bad, whatever your opinion is. But um, in that trial, people are going to be focused on what the evidence is. And sometimes reality is, you know, just whatever's being put in that bubble, what evidence and testimonies before the jury And so here, you know, you can imagine a defense where they make him out to be some sort of hero journalist. They point out that all these things that are supposedly part of the conspiracy are things that people who are legitimate journalists do. And they could even call some legitimate journalists to say that, that they use signal and they, you know, do this and that and all these things that he does. And then that the one episode is something that, you know, doesn't really didn't really make a difference and make them feel, you know, make it seem like he's being. Um, like you point of a politically motivated prosecution or whatever. So to me, what I see here, Barb, is a case that like maybe they'll get a conviction, maybe not, but it's far from a slam dunk. And so that that informed my VS reason. I was like betting uh, coffee and pizza and whatever, um, because I thought, OK, are they really going to put it all on the line? Because the United, the United States government credibility is on the line here. Maybe maybe they're like, we're going to roll the dice on Assange. But it does seem a little bit like a roll of the dice to me. Yeah, well, um, I guess I guess we'll see on that um, what the jury appeal is like. But I think. Um, you know, just just looking at it aside from that issue, it looks strong to me. But I, I think you raise a very good point that um, with the right jury, you could easily get an, a, a decision where they just sort of shrug and say, "Is this really a federal? Are you really making a federal case out of this?" Especially in light of the you know potential free press arguments. Yeah, and then obviously Manning is a, a wild card. I guess I would I would yeah. put it. Maybe she'll yeah, come no, around. There, there are a lot of challenges here. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and so. 
you know, I, one thing I will sort of caution to our listeners is that when you are looking at indictments, not all indictments are created equal. And so, in other words, an indictment like this, a one-count indictment that has significant problems, um, to me is a case that, you know, the government might be able to prove, might not. You know, 36 counts against Mr. Avenatti, that's a different story. I mean, there's just a tremendous amount of paper. Either you paid your taxes or you didn't. Um, this is These are issues that I think are complicated and fact-intensive and um, and so on and so forth. But I don't think anything that we've said today about the challenges of proving the case have anything to do with uh, in, or change my analysis of the press freedom point. And would you agree with that, Barb? Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, th- there's been, you know, some good commentary on this issue about uh, some arguing that it does uh, endanger freedom of the press and others arguing that it does not. Um, you know, I, I, I would uh, argue that they have uh, carefully sidestepped that issue to focus on just the computer hacking piece of it, which may or may not, as you say, make it the strongest case in the world. But I, I think it's, um, I, I actually like this charge for that reason, that they have um, tried to distinguish him from legitimate uh, news gatherers. You know, if you're the New York Times or um, any newspaper, when you get information like this, uh, one, I hope they are not encouraging people to hack into classified government systems. Uh, two, I hope that they are uh, assessing the accuracy of the information that they're turning over. And then three, I hope that they are assessing the danger to national security. You know, if you've seen that movie, The Post, they've got a room full of reporters reading every piece of paper before they report on it. They're thinking about it carefully. Um, what Julian Assange does is he just grabs it and dumps it on, on the Internet for the whole world to see, including our adversaries. It's very different from what journalists do, but it's a very difficult line to draw what is and is not a legitimate journalist. And so I think what they said here is, let's not answer that question. Let's instead focus on the misconduct of conspiring to hack into a computer. And then we avoid all of these line drawing of whether he is or isn't a legitimate journalist. So I, 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 would, I would have brought this case. I mean, if a prosecutor said to me, would we recommend this case? Um, I would have approved this. And uh, I think it's narrow enough. And despite its, um, its uh, litigation risk, um, it's, it's certainly no slam dunk that uh, you know it looks like there's email evidence to show their conversations back and forth about how things went down. Um, I think it is a, a valid case and one that respects the First Amendment distinction by steering away from the publication charge. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Barb. I think that um, the 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 litigation risk is one thing. I don't know enough about all. What you know, Chelsea Manning's doing, uh, and all that stuff to know the risk. If I thought we were going to lose the case, I wouldn't have brought. I wouldn't bring it. But if I thought we were likely to win, I think that's it is a valid charge. And look, everyone knows I have strong feelings about Mr. Assange. I'm not his biggest fan, uh, to put it mildly. I think he's he. I don't consider him a legitimate journalist. I consider him somebody who is taking hostile actions against the United States of America. And I think. Uh, frankly, appears to be in cahoots with the Russian government, as far as I'm concerned. But the principles here are important. We care about the principles of doing the right thing and making sure that we have freedom of the press, particularly in an age when the president is calling the press the enemy of the American people. I care very much about the freedom of the press. And so if I did believe that he was that this was a charge that could potentially be used against journalists, uh, then I then that's one thing. But I, I, I think you as you point out, there's a very important distinction here. I think we agree on that point. 
I will say I want to do lead into because I know we have had a number of questions from listeners about what it's in, the broader impact of this might be. Uh, Patty, do you have a question on that point? Yes. One of our listeners wonders if the arrest of Assange has any impact on his role in the Roger Stone case and whether or not he's a witness or a co-conspirator in that situation. Any thoughts on that, Barb? Yeah, I don't know. I, I suppose it's a possibility. Um, I know that I have read recently that um, the government has requested that the search warrant applications in the Roger Stone case remain sealed from public disclosure because they include information about ongoing investigations. I found that to be interesting. That suggests that there are other people still to be uh, interviewed there or potentially even charged there. Um, and we know from the indictment, or at least there's an allegation in the Roger Stone indictment, that um, there are allegations that he had communications with WikiLeaks. And so uh, it is possible that the government, once they get him here, would try to flip him, although I think the timing suggests that just isn't going to work. Roger Stone goes to trial November 5th, and as we said, I don't think we can expect to see Julian Assange to arrive in the United States for several years. And so this really could be just a matter of holding him accountable uh, to deter others from engaging in similar activity. I think the timing of his arrival in the United States is just going to prevent him from being a helpful witness in pending investigations. I don't know. What do you think about that, Renato? You know, I think if I represented Mr. Assange, because uh, I, I think when you represent someone, you have to consider their their well-being overall, okay? So here's a man who's gone through a lot. He's been, you know, holed up in an embassy. I mean, the, the Swedish charges are a totally separate issue. Let's assume that those are off the table because I don't know what to make of those or why they were, why they were dismissed right. and what, what's going on. Put all that to the side. You know, I would consider make, you know, flying to Washington and making uh, the following pitch to the government, laying out for them why I think there's a chance that they could lose a trial. Why no Justice right. Department doesn't want that. It's a bad case. Uh, you guys have some problems with your case. Um, and Mr. Assange is willing to, like, talk to you and tell you whatever he knows about, you know, what was happening in the 2016 election and Roger Stone. He's happy to come in and testify if there's something he knows. He has all these secrets about whatever he's willing to tell you. Happy to, you know, help the United States of America defend its borders or whatever, you know, defend its its cybersecurity. And in, and in exchange for that, you know, you guys decide that you're magnanimous and you're going to drop these charges and everyone everyone wins. Mr. Assange goes home uh, and can, you know, can can relax and, and um, you know, whatever. So I, that I think that would something I don't know if Mr. Assange would want to do that just because obviously, you know, he's firebrand and has all sorts of opinions about the United States. But if I was his attorney, I'd say you have to seriously consider that option because, your other option isn't super great, which is to hang around and go to the United States in custody and then, you know, await trial and potentially lose, very likely lose, but, you know, just because the United States often wins. So if I'm the prosecutor at that meeting, you've come to me as a defense attorney. I think the question I would ask you is, um, is he willing to testify against others? Is he willing to cooperate? Because we have a lot of questions we'd like to ask him in exchange for maybe not dropping the charges uh, but a guilty plea with substantially reduced prison time, possibly even probation. Would he be willing to provide information to others about others? Yeah, I just think that let's just say if he's, you know, probation or under a year or whatever, if that's what he's looking at, very hard for Mr. Assange and his team 
to not take that very seriously, even if it means he gets on the stand and, you know, says whatever about Roger Stone or about the Russian uh, Internet Research Agency or whatever. I mean, whatever, whoever he could provide information on, I have no idea. Um, but I assume the guy knows something that the United States government wants to know. So to me, that that's an outcome that I would not discount uh, uh, coming out of this. And it might be one reason why if I was sitting in DOJ headquarters and I was asked to approve these charges, you know, it would be something that would be in my mind. In other words, I'd say, well, let's move forward with this. We realize we may have some proof problems, but we're going to make an aggressive offer to Mr. Assange. And perhaps he'll see the light that it's better off um, not being a rogue uh, and, uh, you know, putting this chapter of his life behind him. Yeah. And, you know, to, uh, to, to that point, I think that um, he likely has some baggage as a witness, right? Some serious baggage as a witness. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even so, um, number one, uh, we've all put on witnesses with lots of baggage and there are ways to address that. Um, but number two, even if you decide I don't want to use him as a witness, um, in any case against any defendant, I really want to know the truth. I want to understand how Russia was interfering with our elections. And if you have information about that, if you're communicating with Guccifer 2.0 or Russian intelligence, um, and, and you've got information helpful to protecting our national security, that's really valuable too. So I think you're right that he has great potential value as a cooperator. Yeah, I think it's more likely that he'll do the the latter, what you just mentioned, Barb, which is, there's a lot of counterintelligence information that, that Assange can provide, information that can help the United States figure out who's been feeding him information and what kind of intrusions there are and what kind of potential you know threats there are from Russia and so forth. He might be able to provide that information without ever being a witness, and that might be enough uh, for the government to say, well, you know what, we got something valuable out of this man. Uh, we vindicated what we, be- what we believe here. He's going to go and you know, retire and, and whatever, you know, uh, go get, you know, just, uh, relax, uh, and not, uh, not be engaged in this activity anymore. This is, this is a win for the United States government. They move on. And that, that will be a win for Mr. Assange yeah. in the state, this situation as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I think one thing that's really interesting and that could damage his ability to be a witness and maybe even the government's ability to trust his credibility is, you know, there've been these reports that he's done these things at the embassy in the UK, um, like uh, smearing his feces over the walls and things like that. And I've wondered what that is all about. It's such strange behavior, but I know that I have read that with regard to other defendants uh, for whom extradition was sought, one of the ways they were able to defeat extradition is showing that they had mental health issues. And I've wondered if it is an either one, a genuine mental health issue, or two, an effort to create a pretext of a mental health issue to avoid extradition. And if he does that, if that's the case, that would certainly have some impact on his credibility, I would think. So I want to know a little more about that. I'd ask him about it at the very least. Yeah, and I, I also say, I mean, it's possible that just being cooped up in an embassy for years does that to you. I don't know. I mean, if if that's the case, I don't, you know, I don't wish mental health issues on anyone. Um, I will say that that would be something that the court would be considering at sentencing. They would consider everything about Mr. Assange, including his mental health, but also some of his deeds that were not charged here, but may have been, you know, whether they're positive or negative, I suppose, depends on one's point of view. I often think that many of them are negative. But, um, you know, all of that, I think, would be considered uh, at sentencing. And I also think that, 
that you know the the potent, if there are any potential issues with extradition although i will say that the judges comments in england don't you know make it suggest to me that the, that the extradition is probably going to go through um you know that that would be something the government would factor in as well in other words if there are some mental health issues that could be um you know used to delay uh, the extradition in any way. Uh, I think we have one last question before we go. Patty, do you um, do you have one from our listeners? Yes. Uh, one of our listeners one is concerned that Barr might interfere or that President Trump might uh, pardon Assange, you know, that perhaps Trump will view him as an ally and try to shift the narrative to make him a hero. What do you guys think about that? I don't think so. You know, he was charged in May of 2018 that was part of this administration. I would think that that's the kind of thing that Trump probably got a heads up about, you know, not input into the decision, but a heads up. It does implicate national security and international relations. And so I think if he wanted to scuttle it, he would have done it before the charges were unsealed. So I don't think so. You know, his latest uh, strategy has been to say, I don't know much about WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, if that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> so I don't think so. Um, I mean, I guess the, 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 the fear would be that uh, he's going to spill the beans and implicate members of the Trump administration. It seems that President Trump is distancing himself from Julian Assange. I, I guess I don't know all the reasons behind that, but it appears that he is uh, and the administration are on board with treating him like a criminal. And so I don't think so, but I guess it's always a possibility. I don't know, Renato, what do you think? Uh, I, I agree with you, Barb. I don't see it happening. Uh, Trump is distancing himself from Assange. Uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, uh, that that makes a lot of sense at this stage. As Barb said, this is going to play out over a long period of time. And there's a lot that's involved. And I think Trump likes being able to say he's tough, you know, tough on Russia. Now I'll say he's tough on WikiLeaks. I think, you know, I think it's actually a good PR message for him, or at least he believes it is. So, Barb, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been fantastic discussion, and uh, you've you've taught me some things. Unfortunately, it probably cost me either a coffee or a pizza, depending on whether you hold me to the pizza <laughs> part. But that's okay. Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. No, I uh, enjoyed discussing with you too, Renato. You know, your perspective as a defense attorney, I think, is very valuable. So I've learned some things too, and always learn grace from uh, from Patty. So thank you, Patty. Thank you. It was great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 